She walks by the sea, counting shells on the beach. One, two, three. She picks them up one by one, collecting their ocean suns. She puts them inside of her pocket and walks them back to the town. And she says to all of the people, I collect. Did all the sounds I collected all the sounds Hello, and welcome back to Collected Sounds. I am your host, Amy L., and I'm really glad you're here. The story is called Afterward, and the author is Edith Wharton. It was published in 1910, and it is an ironic ghost story about greed and retribution. This episode is Chapter 3, so if you've not already listened to the previous chapters, I recommend doing so. When we left Mary and Ned Boyne, they were discussing a business matter, wherein Ned was potentially being sued by a former business associate. Mary was just learning about it and was quite worried. Ned was trying to convince her it was water under the bridge and she had nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, they're both still trying to figure out if they've seen a ghost or not. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Chapter 3 One of the strangest things she was afterward to recall, out of all the next day's incredible strangeness, was the sudden and complete recovery of her sense of security. It was in the air when she woke in her low-ceilinged, dusky room. It accompanied her downstairs to the breakfast table, flashed out at her from the fire, and reduplicated itself brightly from the flanks of the urn and the sturdy floutings of the Georgian teapot. It was as if, in some roundabout way, all her diffused apprehensions of the previous day, with their moment of sharp concentration about the newspaper article, as if this dim questioning of the future and startled return upon the past had between them liquidated the arrears of some haunting moral obligation. If she had indeed been careless of her husband's affairs, it was, her new state seemed to prove, because her faith in him instinctively justified such carelessness. And his right to her faith had overwhelmingly affirmed itself in the very face of menace and suspicion. She had never seen him more untroubled, more naturally and unconsciously in possession of himself, than after the cross-examination to which she had subjected him. It was almost as if He had been aware of her lurking doubts and had wanted the air cleared as much as she did. It was clear, thank heaven, as the bright outer light that surprised her almost with a touch of summer when she issued from the house for her daily round of the gardens. She had left Boyne at his desk, indulging herself as she passed the library door by a last peep at his quiet face where he bent, pipe in his mouth, above his papers, and now she had her own morning's task to perform. The task involved on such charmed winter days almost as much delighted loitering about the different quarters of her domain as if spring were already at work on shrubs and borders. There were such inexhaustible possibilities still before her, such opportunities to bring out the latent graces of the old place, without a single irreverent touch of alteration, that the winter months were all too short to plan what spring and autumn executed. And her recovered sense of safety gave, 
on this particular morning, a peculiar zest to her progress through a sweet, still place. She went first to the kitchen garden, where the espaliered pear trees drew complicated patterns on the walls, and pigeons were fluttering and preening about the silvery-slated roof of their cot. There was something wrong about the piping of the hothouse, and she was expecting an authority from Dorchester, who was to drive out between the trains and make a diagnosis of the boiler. But when she dipped into the damp heat of the greenhouses, among the spice scents and waxy pinks and reds of old-fashioned exotics, even the flora of Lang was in the note. She learned that the great man had not arrived, and the day being too rare to waste in an artificial atmosphere, she came out again and paced slowly along the springy turf of the bowling green to the gardens behind the house. At their farther end rose a grass terrace, commanding, over the fish pond and the yew hedges, a view of the long house front, with its twisted chimney stacks and the blue shadows of its roof angles, all drenched in the pale gold moisture of the air. Seen thus across the level tracery of the yews, under the suffused mild light, it sent her, from its open windows and hospitably smoking chimneys, the look of some warm human presence of a mind slowly ripened on a sunny wall of experience. She had never before had so deep a sense of her intimacy with it, such a conviction that its secrets were all beneficent, kept, as they said to children, for one's good. So complete a trust in its power to gather up her life and Ned's into the harmonious pattern of the long, long story it sat there weaving in the sun. She heard steps behind her, and turned, expecting to see the gardener, accompanied by the engineer from Dorchester. But only one figure was in sight, that of a youngish, slightly built man, who, for reasons she could not on the spot have specified, did not remotely resemble her preconceived notion of an authority on hothouse boilers. The newcomer, on seeing her, lifted his hat and paused with the air of a gentleman. Perhaps a traveler desirous of having it immediately known that his intrusion is involuntary, the local fame of Lang occasionally attracted the more intelligent sightseer, and Mary half expected to see the stranger disassemble a camera or justify his presence by producing it. But he made no gesture of any sort, and after a moment she asked, in a tone responding to the courteous deprecation of his attitude, is there anyone you wish to see? I came to see Mr. Boyne, he replied. His intonation rather than his accent was faintly American. And Mary, at the familiar note, looked at him more closely. The brim of his soft felt hat cast a shade on his face, which, thus obscured, wore to her short-sighted gaze a look of seriousness, as if a person arriving on business and civilly but firmly aware of his rights. Past experience had made Mary equally sensible to such claims, but she was jealous of her husband's morning hours, and doubtful of his having given anyone the right to intrude on them. "'Have you an appointment with Mr. Boyne?' she asked. He hesitated, as if unprepared for the question. "'Not exactly an appointment,' he replied. "'Then I'm afraid, this being his working time, that he cannot receive you now. Will you give me a message, or come back later?' The visitor, again lifting his hat, briefly replied that he would come back later and walked away, as if to regain the front of the house. As his figure receded down the walk between the yew hedges, Mary saw him pause and look up an instant at the peaceful house front, bathed in faint winter sunshine, 
and it struck her, with a tardy touch of compunction, that it would have been more humane to ask if he had come from a distance and to offer, in that case, to inquire if her husband could receive him. But as the thought occurred to her, he passed, out of sight, behind a pyramidal yew, and at the same moment her attention was distracted by the approach of the gardener, attended by the bearded salt-and-pepper figure of the boilermaker from Dorchester. The encounter with this authority led to such far-reaching issues that they had resulted in his finding it expedient to ignore his train and beguiled Mary into spending the remainder of the morning in absorbed confabulation among the greenhouses. She was startled to find that when the colloquy ended, that it was nearly luncheon time, and she had half expected, as she hurried back to the house, to see her husband coming out to meet her. But she found no one in the court but an undergardener raking the gravel, and the hall, when she entered it, was so silent that she guessed Boyne to be still at work behind the closed door of the library. Not wishing to disturb him, she turned into the drawing room, and there, at her writing table, lost herself in renewed calculations of the outlay to which the morning's conference had committed her. The knowledge that she could permit herself such follies had not yet lost its novelty, and somehow, in contrast to the vague apprehensions of the previous days, it now seemed an element of her recovered security, of the sense that, as Ned had said, things in general had never been righter. She was still luxuriating in a lavish play of figures when the parlor maid from the threshold roused her with a dubiously worded inquiry as to the expediency of serving luncheon. It was one of their jokes that Trimble announced luncheon as if she were divulging a state secret, and Mary, intent on her papers, merely murmured an absent-minded assent. She felt Trimble wavering expressively on the threshold as if in rebuke of such offhand acquiescence. Then her retreating steps sounded down the passage, and Mary, pushing away her papers, crossed the hall and went to the library door. It was still closed, and she wavered in her turn, disliking to disturb her husband, yet anxious that he should not exceed his normal measure of work. As she stood there, balancing her impulses, the esoteric Trimmel returned with the announcement of luncheon, and Mary, thus impelled, opened the door and went into the library. Boyne was not at his desk, and she peered about her, expecting to discover him at the bookshelves, somewhere down the length of the room. But her call brought no response, and gradually it became clear to her that he was not in the library. She turned back to the parlor maid. Mr. Boyne must be upstairs. Please tell him that luncheon is ready. The parlor maid appeared to hesitate between the obvious duty of obeying orders and an equally obvious conviction of the foolishness of the injunction laid upon her. The struggle resulted in her saying doubtfully, If you please, madam, Mr. Boyne's not upstairs. Not in his room? Are you sure? I'm sure, madam. Mary consulted the clock. Where is he, then? He's gone out, Trimble announced with the superior air of one who has respectfully waited for the question that a well-ordered mind would have first propounded. Mary's previous conjecture had been right then. Boyne must have gone to the gardens to meet her. And since she had missed him, it was clear that he had taken the shorter way by the south door instead of going round to the court. She crossed the hall to the glass portal opening directly on the yew garden, but the parlor maid, after another moment of inner conflict, decided to bring out recklessly, Please, madam, Mr. Boyne didn't go that way. Mary turned back. Where did he go, and when? He went out of the front door, up the drive, madam. 
It was a matter of principle with Trimble never to answer more than one question at a time. Up the drive at this hour? Mary went to the door herself and glanced across the courtyard through the long tunnel of bare limes. But its perspective was as empty as when she had scanned it upon entering the house. Did Mr. Boyne leave no message? she asked. Trimble seemed to surrender herself to a last struggle with the forces of chaos. No, madam, he just went out with a gentleman. The gentleman? What gentleman? Mary wheeled about as if to front this new factor. The gentleman who called, madam, said Trimble, resignedly. When did a gentleman call? Do explain yourself, Trimble. Only the fact that Mary was very hungry and that she wanted to consult her husband about the greenhouses would have caused her to lay so unusual an injunction on her attendant. And even now she was detached enough to note, in Trimble's eye, the dawning defiance of the respectful subordinate who has been pressed too hard. I couldn't exactly say the hour, madam, because I didn't let the gentleman in, she replied with the air of magnanimously ignoring the regularity of her mistress's course. You didn't let him in? No, madam. When the bell rang, I was dressing, and Agnes... Go ask Agnes, then, Mary interjected. Trimmel still wore her look of impatient magnanimity. Agnes would not know, madam, for she had unfortunately burned her hand trying the wick of the new lamp from town. Trimmel, as Mary was aware, had always been opposed to the new lamp, and so Mrs. Dockett sent the kitchen maid instead. Mary looked again at the clock. It's after two. Go and ask the kitchen maid if Mr. Boyne has left any word. She went into luncheon without waiting, and Trimmel presently brought her there the kitchen maid's statement that the gentleman had called about one o'clock that Mr. Boyne had gone out with him without leaving any message. The kitchen maid did not even know the caller's name, for he had written it on a slip of paper, which he had folded and handed to her, with the injunction to deliver it at once to Mr. Boyne. Mary finished her luncheon, still wondering, and when it was over, and Trimmel had brought the coffee to the drawing room, her wonder had deepened to a first faint tinge of disquietude. It was unlike Boyne to absent himself, without explanation, at so unwanted an hour, and the difficulty of identifying the visitor whose summons he had apparently obeyed made his disappearance the more unaccountable. Mary Boyne's experience as the wife of a busy engineer, subject to sudden calls and compelled to keep irregular hours, had trained her to the philosophic acceptance of surprises. But since Boyne's withdrawal from business, he had adopted a Benedictine regularity of life as if to make up for the dispersed and agitated years, with their stand-up lunches and dinners rattled down to the joltings of the dining car, he cultivated the last refinements of punctuality and monotony, discouraging his wife's fancy for the unexpected, and declaring that to a delicate taste there were infinite gradations of pleasure in the fixed recurrences of habit. Still, since no life can completely defend itself from the unforeseen, it was evident that all Boyne's precautions would sooner or later prove unavailable, and Mary concluded that he had cut short a tiresome visit by walking with his caller to the station, or at least accompanying him for part of the way. This conclusion relieved her from further preoccupation, and she went about herself to take up her conference with the gardener. Thence, she walked to the village post office a mile or so away, and when she turned toward home, the early twilight was setting in. She had taken a footpath across the downs, and, 
As Boyne, meanwhile, had probably returned from the station by the high road, there was little likelihood of their meeting on the way. She felt sure, however, of his having reached the house before her, so sure that, when she entered it herself without even pausing to inquire of Trimmel, she made directly for the library. But the library was still empty, and with an unwanted precision of visual memory, she immediately observed that the papers on her husband's desk lay precisely as they had lain when she had gone in to call him to luncheon. Then, all of a sudden, she was seized by a vague dread of unknown. She had closed the door behind her on entering, and as she stood alone in the long, silent, shadowy room, her dread seemed to take shape and sound, to be there audibly breathing and lurking among the shadows. Her short-sighted eyes strained through them, half discerning an actual presence, something aloof, that watched and knew. And in the recoil from that untangible propinquity, she threw herself suddenly on the bell rope and gave it a desperate pull. The long, quavering summons brought Trimmel in precipitately with a lamp, and Mary breathed again at this sobering reappearance of the usual. "'You may bring tea if Mr. Boyne is in,' she said to justify her ring. "'Very well, madam, but Mr. Boyne is not in,' said Trimmel, putting down the lamp. "'Not in? You mean he's come back and gone out again?' "'No, madam, he's never been back.' The dread stirred again, and Mary knew that now it had her fast. "'Not since he went out with the gentleman?' "'Not since he went out with the gentleman.' "'But who was the gentleman?' Mary gasped out with a sharp note of someone trying to be heard through a confusion of meaningless noises. "'That I couldn't say, madam.' Trimmel, standing there by the lamp, seemed suddenly to grow less round and rosy, as though eclipsed by the same creeping shade of apprehension. "'But the kitchen maid knows. Wasn't it the kitchen maid who let him in?' "'She doesn't know either, madam.' or he wrote his name on a folded paper. Mary, through her agitation, was aware that they were both designating the unknown visitor by a vague pronoun instead of the conventional formula which, till then, had kept their illusions within the bounds of custom. And at the same moment her mind caught at the suggestion of the folded paper. But he must have a name. Where's the paper? She moved to the desk and began to turn over the scattered documents that littered it. The first that caught her eye was an unfinished letter in her husband's hand, with his pen lying across it, as though dropped there at a sudden summons. My dear Parvis, who was Parvis? I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, it might be safer. She tossed the sheet aside and continued her search, but no unfolded paper was discoverable among the letters and pages of manuscript which had been swept together in a promiscuous heap, as if by a hurried or startled gesture. But the kitchenmaid saw him send her here, she commanded, wondering at her dullness and not thinking sooner of so simple a solution. Trimmel, at the behest, vanished in a flash, as if thankful to be out of the room. And when she reappeared, conducting the agitated underling, Mary had regained her self-possession and had her questions pat. The gentleman was a stranger, yes, that she understood. But what had he said, and above all, what had he looked like? The first question was easily enough answered for the discerning reason that he had said so little. Had merely asked for Mr. Boyne, and scribbling something on a bit of paper, had requested that it should at once be carried into him. Then you don't know what he wrote? You're not sure it was his name? 
The kitchen maid was not sure, but supposed it was, since he had written it in an answer to her inquiry as to who she should announce. And when you carried the paper into Mr. Boyne, what did he say? The kitchen maid did not think that Mr. Boyne had said anything, but she could not be sure, for just as she had handed him the paper and he was opening it, she had become aware that the visitor had followed her into the library, and she had slipped out, leaving the two gentlemen together. But then, if you left them in the library, how do you know that they went out of the house? This question plunged the witness into momentary inarticulateness, from which she was rescued by Trimmel, who, by means of ingenious circumlocutions, elicited the statement that before she could cross the hall to the back passage, she had heard the gentleman behind her and had seen them go out of the front door together. Then, if you saw the gentleman twice, you must be able to tell me what he looked like. But with this final challenge to her powers of expression, it became clear that the limit of the kitchen maid's endurance had been reached. The obligation of going to the front door to show in a visitor was in itself so subversive of the fundamental order of things that it had thrown her faculties into hopeless disarray, and she could only stammer out after various panting efforts at evocation. His hat, Mum, was different-like, as you might say. Different? How different? Mary flashed out at her in her own mind, in the same instant leaping back to an image left on that morning, but temporarily lost under layers of subsequent impressions. His hat had a wide brim, you mean, and his face was pale. A youngish face, Mary pressed her, with a white-lipped intensity of interrogation. But if the kitchen maid found any adequate answer to this challenge, it was swept away for her listener down the rushing current of her own convictions. The stranger, the stranger in the garden, why had Mary not thought of him before? She needed no one now to tell her that it was he who had called for her husband and gone away with him. But who was he? And why had Boyne obeyed his call? Thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed the story so far, and I hope you tune in next time for Chapter 4. I suggest you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss it. This podcast is produced by me, Amy, at Collected Sounds Productions. The theme song was created especially for Collected Sounds by Canel. Until next time.